Across America, BP supports more than 275,000 jobs to keep energy flowing. Jobs like building grid-scale solar energy in Ohio and producing gas with fewer operational emissions in Texas. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. VR training platforms like the one developed by Fundamental VR and Orbis International are helping surgeons train over and over before operating on real patients. As you practice each skill, the muscle memory starts to develop. Learn more at meta.com slash metaverse impact. The Bowery Boys, episode 114. All aboard the subway of the supernatural. Hey, it's the Bowery Boys. Hey. The Bowery Boys is brought to you by Eurocheapo.com. Eurocheapo editors personally visit and review the best budget hotels in Europe. Now with hotels in New York City. On the web at Eurocheapo.com. Good evening. And welcome to the Bowery Boys. This is Greg Young. And this is Tom Myers. Welcome to our fourth annual Halloween podcast, where we take traditional history, it's still the same New York City history, mix it up with a little legend, and of course, our usual dosage of mad theatrics. And just to heighten the drama, this year Greg has brought in some orange Halloween twinkle lights. We have a little apple cider and some donuts. I hope that you're listening to the show uh, also in a moody, somewhat somber atmosphere mm. as we go through four new tales of New York. These are well-known ghost stories. At least three of these four stories are ghost stories. One of them is just, it's flat-out history. There's nothing embellished about it, but it, this place is so creepy that just talking about it will send chills up your spine. As we sit here and record this on this crisp, cool October evening, we are very close to Halloween itself. But, of course, you can listen to these spooky stories, to these haunted tales at any time of the year. And we do have three other podcasts that do the same sort of thing with ghost-themed stories about New York City history. So you can look at those in our back catalog. But, Tom, I think it's time to turn down the lights. Hmm. Hold on one second. Yeah. I don't. I don't actually mean actually turning down the lights. I have to. We have oh, to. We, we have, have to read, read our the, stories that's what here. The, the, that's what the Halloween lights here are for. For us. For us. But we have to actually read. But our listeners can turn down the lights, find your inner haunt, and get ready to listen to some supernatural tales of New York. Wow, that is creepy, and it puts me in the mood to talk about a little house that needed some exercising of its own, Greg. 
the funny thing is about that song, Tom, if I let it play for like another two minutes, it gets incredibly cheesy. <laughs> that is, of course, Tubular Bells by Mike Oldfield, which is the theme song, of course, to Exorcist. Did you know that, I mean, of course, Exorcist is, has a well-known location of Georgetown, but there were actually a, a big pivotal scene in the movie filmed out on Roosevelt Island, and all of the interior scenes, so basically all the scenes with her like flipping her head around and yeah, everything, all the yeah. demon scenes, those interiors were actually filmed in Hell's Kitchen here in New York over on 450 West 54th Street in one of the studios. You know, today they film all the talk shows and oh, things sure, over yeah. there. So um, there was a studio there, and so a lot of those scenes were filmed there, which is interesting. Well, there's plenty to turn your head in Hell's Kitchen. <laughs> the reason I'm bringing that up is because it's a little off the beaten path. That's not in a guidebook, but if you're a fan of the f- film, you might want to peek over there. And then today's stories that we're going to be talking about, these are locations that, you know, they're not, you know, the Chelsea Hotel is haunted, the Dakota Apartments are haunted. Those types of things. And those are well-known places. Sure, yeah. We're going to talk about some places that you're going to have to look for, but there are they're real places. Many of them are residences. And in most cases, the proprietors would probably wish that we didn't talk about them as haunted establishments. But that... But they... We wouldn't be doing our job That's right. if we left those stories alone. And at the very end, the last story is not a residence. I think it's the scariest place in New York City. Mm. So we'll save that for the end. Tom, why don't you kick off our show here with the first ghost story? Is it Where is it set? I'm going to take you to 14th Street and 6th Avenue. In fact, 131 West 14th Street. It's a building that you have probably walked by a thousand times and never really paid any attention to. It's between 6th and 7th. It's on the north side of the street, um, just across from the giant Salvation Army. Oh, sure. Do you know where yeah, that yeah, is? Yeah. Just, and it's actually right next door to the new YMCA building that's my, there. Yeah, my dentist used to be over there. Who knew? <laughs> so 131, on the ground floor is a vacuum cleaner shop. It's a narrow five-story brick building that throughout the 1880s was operated as a boarding house by a woman named Mary Carr. Sometimes she housed up to 30 tenants inside. It's really hard to say how many tenants, of course, because many would only stay for a few nights before running for their lives. And it wouldn't have done any good to ask the domestic help either, because Mrs. Carr could hardly convince anyone to keep working for her. After all, this is the tale of what the chambermaid saw. So this is the 1880s? Correct. And I'd like you to think about 14th Street, Greg, during the 1880s. It was a bustling place, as we've mentioned in numerous podcasts, especially the Union Square, the Hotel Chelsea. This was the heyday of the area. Theaters were opening all around Union Square, as were those upscale department stores we talked about. Ladies Mile. The subway had not yet opened. But the streetcars, you know, streetcars were full, carting New Yorkers to and fro and creating a busy, loud, and dangerous scene in the street. And waves of immigrants were arriving in New York daily, Italians, Germans, Irish, moving into the streets, into the workplace, and into the boarding houses, like at 131 West 14th Street, where they could rent a room cheaply, get a meal, share a bathroom, and rest up for another long day. That is, when they could sleep. You see, the boarding house at 131 was haunted. There were two ghosts, actually. 
a man and a woman. He was tall and hunched over with sideburns and a mustache and large black eyes. And she was blonde with a pretty face if you ignored the scars. Ugh. So how, how did these two unusual strangers just happen into this building? They just popped up? Well, in, initially, initially they would appear just to the staff. A maid uh, would walk into the front parlor and notice this young, ghostly female standing in front of the mirror. She liked to s- spend her time in the, in the parlor, in front of the mirror, and she also frequently washed herself and cleaned up in the parlor in the mornings, not really caring if anybody saw her. And then one afternoon, a waiter was setting up in the dining room for the meal uh, when he noticed that there was actually a man sitting at the table. The poor waiter nearly fainted as the man, a ghost, just vanished before his very eyes. Well, understandably, this made life very difficult for Mrs. Carr. It made it difficult for her to hold on to her staff, in fact. Because once you had come face-to-face with with one of these non-rent-paying tenants, most people didn't want to stick around. However, the maids and the cooks grew rather accustomed to hearing these bumps and footsteps and moans and groans when they knew that nobody else was around. Well, I guess this is New York. You just get used to, you know, whatever your situation is. So it's a couple rats, a couple spooks, specters walking here, sure. But, and even Mrs. Carr felt things. She could, she'd feel a cold rush sometimes um, just come over her. As she was walking up the stair one day, she felt an icy cold hand upon her face. In time, however, these ghosts began to appear to the borders. Perhaps they were, you know, looking for more company. There was one evening at 1 a.m. in the dead of the night when one of the boarders, a man, awoke sweating. He just, he sensed that there was something strange in the room. He glanced next to his bed and noticed the man standing right there, looking down at him with those large black eyes and a menacing grimace. The poor boarder, thinking he was dreaming, tried to snap out of it when he realized that the phantom had grabbed him and pulled him from the bed and thrown him to the floor. Greg, you look sick. Yeah, that's. I think I've seen that in a few movies. <laughs> like so, thrown to the floor. Even. Yeah, that's. And he looked on. Then, as his attacker vanished before his eyes, the next morning, this tenant told Miss, Mrs. Carr about this, but he was kind of laughing it off because he thought maybe he had just dreamed the whole thing. You know, um, this this kind of thing doesn't happen. And just flew to the floor like in a in a dream or something. Yeah, it was a nightmare. Unfortunately for him. The same thing happened for the next two nights until finally, totally sleep deprived and terrified, he just checked out of 131. Well, there's a lot of boarding houses that don't have ghosts. So they may have other things, but they don't have bed bugs, but no ghosts. Interestingly, at the very same time, he wasn't the only one receiving these unwarranted calls. At the very same time, there was another tenant who was being visited by the same ghost. And he checked out, however, only after one night of these visits. He said, forget it. I can't, I can't deal. And this is all documented, by the way, I should have added, in an article in the New York Times that was published in 1881. Now, another night, the chambermaid, the famous chambermaid. Yes, the one who... The chambermaid in question. Mm-hmm was fast asleep in her room on the top floor. It was 10 o'clock p.m. She evidently went to sleep quite early. She was in her chamber. She was in her chamber. She woke up, however, as a cold, strange feeling crept across her. A A light flickered out in the hallway, just long enough for her to notice the form of a man standing next to her bed, facing away from her. Facing away from her? 
That's what even makes it creepier. She stared in terror as he turned around slowly to face her, revealing his sideburns, mustache, and black eyes. And just to make it extra creepy, he was holding his hand up to his own face. She screamed, and then she fainted. Understandably. We're not holding it against her. No, not at all. When she regained consciousness, he had moved to the corner. She screamed and fainted again. (laughs) I'm about to faint. When she finally awoke, he was still there, but he had gotten smaller. Smaller? Like like his... He shrunk. And she stared, frozen with fright, and watched as he shrank smaller and smaller, and finally disappeared. And this was in the New York Times. This was in a a reputable newspaper. She bolted. She bolted from her room, screaming as she descended the staircase and rushed into Mrs. Carr's room. Of course, all the shrieking and commotion and running on down the stairs startled the other boarders, and even people passing on the street came in to see what was going on. Well, Mrs. Carr wasn't taking any chances. She had had enough, and she took the situation to the police. After both of these incidences, the police investigated the house, and they found nothing wrong with the locks or the doors, and... There didn't seem to be any way for any intruder to even get in at night. It had been all bolted up. Two different officers, in fact, investigated. Officer Clinge and Officer Chapman. And Officer Chapman had a brilliant idea. He asked a man named Harry Payne, who was an advertising man who promoted a theater on 14th Street, to spend a night at 131 West 14th Street and hold a seance in order to lure out the ghosts so that he might trap it. So Payne held the vigil with some of the domestic staff assisting, but no spirits came forward. Finally, at about 2 o'clock in the morning, he retired to his room because, of course, he was staying in the haunted house. He was asleep when suddenly he felt large hands grabbing his legs, which pulled him violently from the bed and causing him to tumble to the floor. Even during this commotion, Greg, he took out his gun to shoot, but all that he saw was a sort of glowing form float out into the hallway and disappear. He, ra- he raced after it, but he couldn't find any evidence of anything. So an orb form. An orb. Yeah. So what could the police say? You know, where does this leave us? There were, there were no criminals to arrest. They tried to shoot an attacker only to have him glide away. When the other officer, Officer Clinge, remembered something about the building's previous tenants, before Mrs. Carr lived there, there was a family living in the building, one of the daughters was a beautiful 24-year-old woman who drank herself into a sad state. Her fiancé, you see, had been a merchant who, on a trip to Europe, had drowned at sea. And in her misery, she drank herself to death. Her brother was another tragic figure, and he also ended up poisoning himself. And after hearing all the boarders' tales and their descriptions of the ghosts haunting the house, Officer Clinch reported with some hesitation that, in fact... The physical descriptions of the ghost match those of the tragic brother and sister, who apparently never left home. And all of this was on 14th Street. I'm never going to walk on that block the same way again. On well, the north side. Just by the Good Stuff Diner. I like the diner. Mm-hmm, yes. Just walk quickly <laughs> past the vacuum shop. Was that creepy enough for you? Oh, indeed. A good way to start our show, because it's just a good, old-fashioned Right. On April 19, 1995, a federal building in Oklahoma City was destroyed in a domestic terrorist attack. 
Just days after the bombing, America discovered the perpetrator was right-wing extremist Timothy McVeigh, whose mindset and values are still very present today. It's an American tragedy, but one I still remember very vividly. But there is so much more to the story than what you might remember. Take a deeper look into this moment of history with the podcast Homegrown OKC, hosted by Jeffrey Tubin and based on his book. The Homegrown OKC podcast is about better understanding the political environment in our country today. In particular, I found fascinating all the original archival footage used in the show, sounds which brought me back to that time, but with a richer understanding of events. These episodes were thrilling to listen to. That's Homegrown OKC. To listen, search for Homegrown OKC in your podcast app. That's Homegrown OKC. I'm about to get into something a little bit more complex. You had actually brought up... Insane. Now, you'll see what I mean. You'll, you'll see what I mean. You had mentioned seances. Yes. Um... Uh, I'm actually going to be delving a little bit more into the world of the seance in Mm. the late 19th century, early 20th century. For the name of my story, Tom, is Mediums Rare. We're actually going to a place that's not haunted, but it has real connections to actual paranormal, supernatural activities. That place is at 5 West 73rd Street. It's across the street from the Dakota Apartments, Mm -hmm. which is... To the north. To the, to the north of it, located inside of this building is an organization called the American Society for Psychical Research. This, uh, it's actually been in this location since the 1960s. I'll mention where it was before. Believe it or not, it's an actual nonprofit private research organization that specializes in the study and examination of abnormal and paranormal activity. In particular, according to some of the material I read on the place, they're concerned with things such as ESP, dream research, psychokinesis, which is the levitation Mm -hmm. of objects with the mind, poltergeists, and in particular, at least with this, uh, the communication with those who, quote, survive after death, Mm. unquote. Basically, it's like a fringe division for New York, a very private one, privately run. And this is actually a group that has been around since 1885, started in Boston. And this is back in the days where, you know, this, is, this kind of stuff is sort of intertwined with legitimate scientific activity. As a matter of fact, the first president of the group was astronomer Simon Newcomb and fellow New Yorker and philosopher William James, the brother of Henry James, was eventually the president of a rival group that was uh, sort of similarly themed. Before we jump in here to, to our tale, to our tale of seances here, I just want to give a tiny bit of context here. You have to think about the amusements that thrilled New Yorkers at this time, um, you know, the kinds of like wild things that Barnum used to do. Mm-hmm. It's not really a stretch, if you think about it, that things like mediums and clairvoyance oh, and sure. these types of things would also Well, because New magicians, Yorkers. of course, were f- packing in the crowds, sure. as were mesmer and the mesmerism exactly these are all coming in around this time you also had early in the century with like the the great awakening and you had all these revival movements going on through america spiritualism was actually getting a little more intimate with people they felt like these types of things could really go on in the world and so they were they sort of bought it hook line and sinker and to be fair there are certainly people who still believe that today 
Now, New York was sort of in the center of all this. New York and Boston were two big places where a lot of these uh, events happened. Even as far as back as 1855, the Davenport brothers introduced a spirit cabinet. The very first one appeared here in New York, where a medium, which is somebody who you know can communicate with the dead in some fashion, would sit in the spirit cabinet like for a performance, and they would contact various specters and whatever. People would see them in the cabinet and know that people aren't pulling strings. This, things, this stuff is really happening. Sounds like an absolutely creepy night out at the theater. <laughs> but this, it was so widespread. I mean, like, at Abraham Lincoln famously went to a seance. A lot of respected and intelligent New Yorkers really believed this, or really, like, tried to believe it, tried to get into this uh, for various reasons. People like Horace Greeley mm-hmm. and William Cullen Bryant were um, Res- both... Respected citizens? Yeah, and both heavily involved in and hiring mediums and going to these seances. Now, the American Society of Psychical Research, part of their mission, I guess, was to reel in some of these mystics, give it a little bit more scientific credibility, but to essentially establish the fact that these things can exist in the universe. But, you know, they would, uh, they would dismiss the quacks, and throughout their history, they would have uh, many internal battles because of this, because some people would believe certain clairvoyant figures and others would not. This was a group that started in Boston, but in 1906, it moved to New York. And the new president, when it got here, was a man named James Hyslop. He was a Columbia University professor of logic and ethics, believe mm-hmm. it or not. And he quit his job there to become the president of this particular organization. He worked in association with various clairvoyants and mediums throughout the city. He even like claimed to work with people who had other- already died. In fact, he actually, according to more than one source, claims to have spoken to William James, the brother of Henry James, via these various mediums that he would go to. And he would write long dissertations and books on on these subjects based on these conversations. Certainly a creative way to stretch your resume. (laughs) Who said that death is a deterrent for that new job? Exactly. (laughs) So the society moved down to 44 East 23rd Street. In 1907 became his greatest case, the the one that Hyslop would be known for. And it would involve something called obsession. This is not a fragrance. No, not a fragrance. It involves the idea, not a possession, where a spirit or something actually takes your body. An obsession where a spirit hangs just beside your body directs your every move and torments you and forces you to do things, to compel you to do things. Mm. So one day a man by the name of Frederick Lewis Thompson came in. He was actually um, a goldsmith. A friend had recommended that he go to Hyslip because he had been dealing with something very, very hard and he didn't know who to talk to about it. One day Thompson was at work and he was just, you know, he was a practical man. He had his craft. One day he, quote, was suddenly and inexplicably seized with an impulse to sketch and paint pictures, unquote. He kept having this obsession. He was not an artistic gentleman. And just in particular landscapes, and in particular this one landscape of a grove of trees with knotted wood with twisting branches and dark gray sky. Mm. He would be so obsessed by this that one day he turned to his wife, and he does not remember saying this, One day he turned to his wife and he said, Gifford would like to sketch. But who was Gifford? Well, a little bit later, 
Thompson was actually walking in the neighborhood and there was an art gallery there called the American Art Galleries on 23rd Street. Being displayed there were some works of art by a landscape and marine painter who had some renown of the time and his name was Robert Swain Gifford. He actually has some stuff in the Met in Smithsonian. You can actually find these uh, some Gifford paintings. So Thompson walked into the art gallery. It just everything seemed so familiar. There was like this strange sense of deja vu and then in the back of his mind, almost like it was coming, like being whispered into his ear, he heard, You see what I have done? Can you not take up and finish my work? He heard those very sentences? That very sentence is what he heard. He then discovers that Gifford, this was an actual a retrospective of his work, and that Gifford had actually taken his own life six months previously. And so it appears that... This artist is making some kind of unearthly connection with this poor goldsmith. Now, Hyslop, of course, he could recognize when something was real because he had a lot of quacks and a lot of crazies that knocked on his door. He knew this to be a very different class, not a mere ghost, but something else. From Hyslop's own journal, he says, quote, From this time on, the impulse to paint was stronger, and between this date and the next year, he produced a number of paintings of artistic merit sufficient to demand a fair price on their artistic qualities alone, his story being concealed from all but his wife. So he was actually starting to paint himself. All these paintings were in the same style and very similar topics as Mr. Gifford. The best way to really figure out what's going on is to visit a few mediums. The first medium that they, he visited by the name of Mrs. Rathbun, he came in, he sat with the medium and did not tell the woman like what was going on. He, she, he just sat down and asked a few questions, got some sort of vague answers, the usual sort of medium, medie, sure. you know, that kind of thing. She looks up at him and she stares at him and she's like, oh, there's a gentleman standing behind you. He seems to be a very beautiful, artistic man. He tells me that he ended his own existence. So now had she been clued in? No, nothing. She didn't know anything about the story. She had, at least, the parties involved with the story claim that she knew absolutely nothing. So they decided to verify it. They went to another medium. Her name was Mrs. Chenoweth. Ooh, there's something wicked about that name. It's her name is not Kristen Chenoweth, oh. but and rather these names were made up for the for the newspaper. Her real name, because she was a real and she was a very well known. She was not a medium medium. She was a well known medium by the name of Minnie Meserve Soleil. But she went in the newspapers as Ms. Chenoweth. So this particular medium actually narrowed down the description of Gifford even further, like of, of saying, okay, this man that's haunting you has these kinds of. The color eyes, the shape of face, this height. So she saw him too. And even more clearly. So, I mean, it was verified, basically. And she also gave him some descriptions of places they should go that maybe are, were actually painted. That he actually they, You mean him and Gifford? Him and Gifford, correct. Later, they visited Gifford's widow, who showed him some of the paintings that were in his studio that had never been shown to anybody. And many of them were similar to what Thompson had actually drawn. Later on, they actually go to an island near Martha's Vineyard, one of the Elizabeth Islands, where Gifford would frequently go. He was actually born nearby and actually found that grove with the knotted trees and the twisting trunks and actually sat there and drew a, another picture. So there was like this real intimate, weird connection with this spiritual familiar. 
Upon closer inspection of one of the trees, Gifford's own initials had been carved into the tree, the very tree that he was drawing. So this is creepy. Very, very bizarre, right? Now, that's basically where the story ends, because I don't really know what happened. I looked everywhere to see what happened to Thompson. Um, I Hopefully, he went off to a fruitful art career on the shoulders of a ghost, but hopefully, you know, he got something out of it. Hyslop himself would have many different adventures that were very similar to this, very sort of bizarre events. For instance, he investigated a horse owner in New Jersey the very next year who claimed he could leave his body out of the back of his head and had these out-of-body experiences that he wrote whole journal articles about this very case. He also met another medium in 1909 by the name of Etta DeCamp, and she actually was possessed by a dead writer by the name of Frank Stockton, and in fact, she wrote an entire book as Frank Stockton, and that was in 1909. Right. So you have a man painting as an established painter, and you have a woman who's writing as an established writer. <laughs> yeah, this, I mean, is, this is messy. Well, you know, creative people, they just don't know when to stop, apparently. Hyslop himself in 1909, he actually did another pseudo-exorcism with Mrs. Chenoweth, by the way. And he believed that this particular spirit was tr- tormenting him, was trying to kill him. And in fact, that same year, he had a stroke and died. But perhaps not a surprise, if you've been listening and paying attention. Did he live on through somebody else? He did indeed. and He lived on through his secretary, who he would speak to through various mediums. And she herself would write a book with Hyslop's advice. So he, in fact, did live on. I'm not sure. (laughs) Would we say that he was the ghostwriter? We would indeed say that. Good show, sir. As for this organization, the American Society of Psychical Research, its most famous member, by the way, in 1925, would be Harry Houdini. Mm-hmm. In Houdini's will, he had actually planned to give his entire library to the research organization on the condition that his current president, a man named J. Malcolm Byrd, resigned because he had all these disagreements with Byrd. Byrd refused to resign, and so the books went to the Library of Congress. So they could have gotten this, you know, all the secrets of Harry Houdini. The offices didn't stay on 23rd Street, obviously. You said they were uptown. Yes. In the 1960s, they moved to their present location on 73rd Street. The organization, I believe, is still continuing this work. They do have a questionnaire that you can answer on their website um, that you can fill in some information and send it on if you have more information. It asks things about your dreams and if you have any various cognitive abilities or anything. So this work is still going on on the Upper West Side. Those are the spirits who are sort of at least agreeable. I mean, they're talking through various different people and seance settings. They're not pulling people forcibly out of bed. So I guess they're, it's still very creepy, but at least they're acting proper. Right, acting properly. Unlike this next couple I'd like to tell you about, Greg, I'm going to take us across town and actually down a little to 57 West 57th Street. It's mm-hmm. um, also known as the Medical Arts Building. It's at the northeastern corner of 57th and 6th Avenue. The top three floors, I believe, um, at the headquarters of the Ford Modeling Agency. So if there are any supermodels listening, you should listen to this one very carefully. Oh, what a glamorous, (laughs) glamorous touch. Well, do you mean the penthouse floors of, of that building? Yes. Because that's where this next tale takes place. The tale of the ghosts in the penthouse. 
This building, a 17-story office building, was constructed in 1928. It has touches of Art Deco um, in its facade. It kind of looks like one of the shorter buildings at Rockefeller Center. It has a, a glinty gold tips on everything. And Well, until you get to the top, and then around the penthouse, you have neoclassical statues and moldings and terraces and such. And so we'll be focusing on those penthouses. But first, we need to meet the champions. Edna and Albert Champion, you see, were a high-flying society couple. He was a real spark plug. In fact, he was the inventor of the spark plug, (laughs) Albert Champion. How convenient. He and his wife uh, had been living in Detroit. All had been well until he met the much younger Edna while he was on a business trip in New York. He ended up going back to Detroit and paying his wife $1 million to get a divorce, and then he married Edna. But all was not well with their marriage. He was quite possessive, Champion, and he was nobody's fool. He was much older than she was. He had all the bucks, and so he kept a clutch on his money, and he kept an eye on her socializing. When he was away on business, however, Edna would play. Not a surprise. It didn't sound like a relationship built on a lot of trust. No. And in fact, in 1927, when he was off in Paris attending meetings, Edna came over and was picked up by one of his acquaintances, a dashing young half-French, half-American man named Charles Brazel, or Charlie. Now, Charlie could see a good investment from a mile away. He showered her with affection and attention. He was also a married man, but that really didn't bother anybody because, of course, they were in France. (laughs) And that's what they do. L'amour, l'amour. <laughs> Toujours l'amour. So in Paris already, Albert had this feeling that his wife Edna was going out when he wasn't paying attention. He confronted her about it and, and threatened to leave her penniless and the whole deal. She continued, however, to flaunt it right in his face, going out with young Charlie. Albert actually hunted them down in the very fashionable Hotel de Crillon. He found the little lovebirds in the hotel bar and had a smackdown with Charlie right there at the bar. It got bad. They were throwing things at each other. And finally, Charlie punched Albert in the face, really landing a hard one, knocking him silly. Albert went back to his hotel room and died that night. There were no charges pressed in this. He was found by the French police, who maybe had been bribed. He was found to have died of natural causes. His wife suddenly became the heir to the $12 million spark plug fortune. Uh, I've seen this Hitchcock movie before, yes. Well, Charles, of course, took notice and agreed to move to New York with Edna, despite the fact that he was married. Now, New York... In the late 1920s, of course, was a roaring good time. The city had gone through explosive growth. Shooting uptown, the subways had opened, and they were roaring underground, while up 6th Avenue, the elevated rail still uh rattled along. New apartment buildings were all the rage, and they were shooting up all over town, replacing much smaller structures. In fact, this spot, 57 West 57th Street, just earlier in the decade had been a three-story apartment building, the same one where Dorothy Parker would live during the 20s. And coincidentally enough, she lived there uh, with her husband, and they didn't didn't get get along along either. either. So maybe there's something about this corner. But it had been ripped down, and this new building went up in 1928. Crowning most of these new buildings were were deluxe penthouses, which were equipped with gardens and terraces and 
elaborate trappings. So Charles Brazel made it known to Edna that he wanted one of these fancy apartments. And Edna, flush with cash, approached 57 West 57th Street about buying the penthouse, two floors of the penthouse. Mm -hmm. But it wasn't for sale. But she wasn't going to take no for an answer, so she did what anybody in her position would do, Greg. She just bought the entire building, bought it for $1.3 million in cash. She kept the top two floors for them. The lower one was for him and the upper one was for her. And she turned it into their little love nest. And it featured, among other things, a mural of the two of them painted in the nude, cavorting around <laughs> the Carnival in Venice. So that was a giant mural. And there were all kinds of other, you know, you can imagine. Conversation starters. <laughs> They did have separate rooms because, of course, they weren't married. His on the lower floor, hers upstairs, but they mm -hmm. were joined by a secret staircase that they had built that would go up to her room. How mysterious. So despite all of these extravagant surroundings, however, the couple was not happy at all. And once again, Edna found herself the victim of a controlling man because... Charlie had employed all these French servants who would speak to him in French and who would spy on her and relay all of her actions back to him. So she was basically a prisoner in her two-floor penthouse. The tables have sort of turned on her. And they kept turning. Because, meanwhile, he was in charge of running the building. Remember, she owned it. Right. So he was collecting rent from the mostly medical offices that were there. And still today, there are lots of medical offices in the building. And he also spent a lot of time mysteriously on the roof. We're not quite sure what he was doing up there. The couple fought, they drank, they spent tons of money on drugs and lavish parties. Now, during one of these fights at the end of their relationship, Brazil grew so violent that he threw a telephone at Edna, which hit her so hard that she wound up with a really serious life-threatening injury. And in this state, when she was basically incapacitated and near death, her family found out about her condition and how she was living and how he was treating her. And they were so enraged and concerned that they hired bodyguards to come in and to take care of her and basically protect her from this raging lunatic. Who was living below her and had... In the same this, apartment, yes. but they kept her out of her room. But meanwhile, he was hi hiding out in various doctor's offices because he had keys to all the rooms. This is getting very bizarre. I don't like where this is going. Well, one night he attempted again to break in and see her, and he got into a terrible fight in her bedroom with her laying there on her deathbed. He got into this big fight with her bodyguards who ended up pushing him out her window. He flew out her window down and landed on the terrace a couple floors down. The next day she died, and Brazel died just a few days later. So he died of his injuries from the terrace. They both died of their injuries, basically caused by each other. There, of course, had been subsequent tenants who moved in. That was just in the early 1930s. So people have been living in this space since then. And for those who immediately followed them, the Alsops, times were also kind of rough. Carlton Alsop was a, a businessman who was married to a former Russian princess. And he bought the penthouse, half attracted, you know, by... Uh, the space and also lured in by the giant terrace, which he thought would be great for exercising their f the couple's four Great Danes. Mm -hmm. 
But right from the beginning, they had bad experiences. The Alsops started arguing after they, soon after they moved in, which they had never done before. Parties that they would hold up there regularly turned ugly. People drank too much and weird things happened. They got violent. Mrs. Alsop also started acting more and more strangely kind of obsessive. She worried obsessively about losing her beauty or her wealth. Meanwhile, she was young and she was fabulously wealthy and she was afraid to leave the apartment. She became sort of a prisoner, of, if you will, of the penthouse. So I'm seeing a very scary parallel here. She would be found wandering around on the 15th floor, just almost out of her mind. And she didn't want to be alone. She didn't want to be alone. People were wondering, was the apartment actually changing them? At night, the dogs started crying out from down below. They wondered what, what, what was wrong with the dogs. They turned on the lights and they saw that all four of the dogs were standing together, facing outside into the night, facing nothing. And they, were, they wanted to attack something. They, they saw something. Two of the dogs, actually, in the next couple of days started going crazy. They had like their own little nervous breakdowns and they had to be returned to the kennel. Mr. and Mrs. Alsop started hearing things. They, they heard women's shoes clicking away on the staircase and across the tile floor. They also heard fights. Imagine, the penthouse is silent, yet they could hear a man and woman yelling at each other. When they were having a, a party one night, a guest went upstairs to use the bathroom and came back in such a fright and would never say what it was that he saw. Mrs. Alsop just couldn't take this anymore. She was already fragile, and she had basically a nervous breakdown, and she left the apartment. Right. Mr. Alsop decided to stay in the apartment. After all, they had paid a lot of money. He even decided to go down below into Charlie's old space. He had subsequently blocked off you know, the walls so that he couldn't get down there. He opened it up, and he took one of the dogs, one of the remaining dogs, downstairs <laughs> with him, and the dog frozen wouldn't go down the stairs. And so he went down by himself following this noise, and he got down there. And there was nothing. The noise stopped. But he heard the same noise coming from the top of the stairs where he had just been. But there was nobody up there. So he started to have a nervous breakdown. <laughs> and he convalesced in this, in this hospital. Felt much better, but moved out of the apartments. But Greg, I'm happy to report that subsequent tenants never were spooked by the couple. It seems that perhaps at the end of the day, Charlie and Edna have moved out. Which is good news for the supermodels that have moved in. They won't need to bring an exorcist with their portfolios. And so we're at the final story. And hopefully it will be uh, the most disturbing of them all because this one does not have a ghost element. It doesn't have a legend or a fable. This is the place. It's just the straight up history of a particular place here in New York. To you, in your opinion, what is the creepiest scariest place in New York. And I don't mean like bad neighborhood scary. Mm. In your opinion, if you had to think of a place in New York just off the top of your head. Late at night, when I have to take out the trash in my courtyard. <laughs> yes. And potentially come face to face with a rat. Oh, that's scary. That's, pr that's pretty scary. All right. That's a good, that's a good answer. That, but that's probably not what you were looking for. Well, no, 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 no. That's perfectly fine. I was thinking more along the lines of, I think if you asked... Anyone who knew their geography well, they might say the smallpox hospital. Oh, sure. I'm sorry. Over right. Roosevelt Island. Roosevelt the, Island. The creepy smallpox hospital that we visited that one time. Yes. And it's just because it's really traditionally scary. Like it's right. lit up, it's ruins and everything. However, I think that I personally have discovered the creepiest place in New York, one of the most chilling places. 
It's a little island in the Bronx, and it's called Heart Island. H-A-R-T. It's in the easternmost part of the Bronx, lonely sitting there in the Long Island Sound. It's a mile-long island. It's a quarter of a mile wide, so it's a very slender island, 131 acres. There is no chance that you're going to accidentally walk on this island. There's no bridge. There's no walkway. There are no streets to get there. Um, there's only like one boat a day, and normal people can't take it. It's just city workers. Nobody lives on the island. And the key word there is nobody lives on the island. Ooh, I don't like where this is going. Because <laughs> if you ever make it to Heart Island, it probably means things have gone very, very bad for you. Now, I'm going to explain why in a second, but I'm going to give a little bit of early history of what this island was. It wasn't always slated to be like a dour place. Its first owner, its first European owner, was this man named Thomas Pell for whom the area, the Pelham Bay, is named after. Oh. He got this from local Indian population. Sinaway Minifords was a subtribe of the Algonquin, and for the longest time, the island was actually called the Miniford Islands. But it slowly got this name over time, Heart Island. I believe that the reason it's called Heart Island is, do you remember with Coney Island, when we talked about Coney Island, and the reason it was called Coney Island is because Something of... Something about rabbits? The rabbits, and the right. word Coney being sort right. of a Co British the, the old Dutch. term. Yeah, like an old medieval term for rabbits. The word heart is as a word, another word for deer or stag. Uh, it's a traditional medieval word for stag. So Heart Island might have meant that there were actually deer on there, though it's a very small island. And if you went there to hunt them, they're pretty much gone very quickly. Um, it's also shaped like the hind leg of a deer. So that could also mm -hmm. be part of it, of course. Shaped like the hind leg of a deer. Well, you'll have to see it and you'll know what I mean. You'll know what I mean. New York bought the island in 1868, and like all the islands that New York took over, decided to put unpleasant things on them. And, you know, go back to any of our podcasts on islands, Roosevelt Island, Rikers Island, to Ward's Island, all sorts of unpleasant business. For instance, this was a place where they would detain Confederate soldiers during the Civil War, sort of similar to Governor's Island. There was a quarantine hospital for yellow fever here. There was a boys' reformatory for boys who were not good little boys. Ship uh, off all the undesirables. I mean, you name it. Insane Asylum was here. Prison was also here. Workhouse was here. Even during World War II, there was a disciplinary barracks here. Even in the 60s, there were actually, for a short time, Nike missile launchers. Actual, like, during the Cold War, when oh. they had missiles all over the place, they were actually placed here on Heart Island. Now, that's the scariest thing I've heard all day. Sort of scary, right? And even as far as the 70s, there was a rehab center uh, for drug addicts called the Phoenix House, but that slowly moved away. All of these purposes would fall away, except for one. The one that it's had since 1869 and that it holds today. It is New York City's Potter's Field. Essentially the place where the city buries its dead, buries unidentified bodies, bodies that were unretrieved at the morgue, other kinds of human remains, quote, the indigent and unbefriended. In the early days, Heart Island would be filled bodies that they had been found dead in parks or floating in the East River, bodies that might be found in the subway tunnels, unidentified and unidentifiable corpses. Cadavers, medical cadavers, were taken here after research if the families didn't request them back. They just put them on Hearts Island. 
So all this is very gruesome. And, and it just gets more gruesome. Throughout the years, the city would have these potter's fields on Manhattan Island itself. I mean, we've talked about Washington Square Park was yes. once a potter's yes. field. Bryant Park also was a potter's field for the city. But in 1869, they decided to move it out to this island because it was just out of sight, out of mind. Also because the city had moved up around these places. By this time, it was getting there at leaps and bounds. A young woman by the name of Louisa Van Slyke, she was 24 years old. She was actually in a hospital on Blackwell. And she was an orphan and she did not have any family. She did not have any friends. She had no one who loved her. And she became the first person to be buried at Hearts Island. The first of many, many, many bodies. Today, it's the largest municipal cemetery in the world. At present, from 1869 to now, there have been 850,000 bodies buried at Hearts Island. Almost half the population of Manhattan is buried at Hearts Island. This would not only be unidentified adults and children and infants and stillborns, it would even be partial bodies, limbs and things that they might float in, in various places would also be interred here. I'm looking at a plate of donuts. I'm just, my stomach is turning. This is the dark side of of New York, of the type of municipal things that we don't see, very unpleasant things. These actual fields, these potter fields, they would have gigantic trenches dug into the ground. They would have, on one side, they have them for adults. On the other side, they have them for children. The children's coffins would be stacked up five high, 20 over until a trench would cover. Then they'd cover it up and they'd dig another one. For adults, they would be three coffins high, 100 to 150 people in a trench. There are no tombstones on the island. There's only these little cement markers at the end of a row. Now, the procedure for getting these bodies out there, each borough has a day of the week. So Tuesdays is Queen's Day, and Wednesday is Brooklyn Day, and Thursday is Manhattan. And And and, so on. Well, this seems all very well organized, thankfully. Who exactly does the work? You know, right there is Rikers Island. So uh, they just like where this is going. They just get the inmates from Rikers Island. They employ them here to you know to to bury the the bodies, to dig the graves, and to bury the bodies. I actually read it. This is all still happening. This is today. Yes, it happens to this day, and is happening as you're listening to this podcast. I actually read an article that's sort of considered a plum assignment if you're a, a Rikers inmate because it means well, that you're I suppose least, you get to get outside. You get, you're getting out of the place. Exercise. You know? Now, the sad part, the real tragedy behind a lot of this is that in some cases, it's not that the bodies aren't identified. It's just that the families don't have the money or there's like a language barrier and there's like a mix-up or something. This actually happens more and more and they have to end up retrieving the body and exhuming them and returning them to the families. The most famous case of this, believe it or not, happened in the 1960s and happened with a child actor by the name of Bobby Driscoll. He was actually a young star in a lot of Disney films, including Treasure Island. Oh, well, this is taking an unexpected turn. Yes, we're not talking Disney films. He's a child actor, and, you know, he's following in the footsteps of many other unfortunate child actors. He moved to New York. He actually fell in briefly with Andy Warhol in the factory, but then got a drug habit, and then one day he overdosed in his apartment, and he died. Due to a little bit of a mix-up, He his body was taken to Hart Island, and he was buried there. His family find, found out, and then, I'm not quite sure of the time frame, but eventually got the body and got him exhumed and got him buried in a proper place. That kind of thing still happens in the city. It's very disturbing. 
1977, there was a mysterious fire on the island, and all the records were destroyed in oh. this fire. So before that particular time, there's no information because of this mysterious fire. So there's thousands of unknown bodies that are buried there. They didn't have it backed up on microfiche or something? I don't believe so. No microfiche. But later the records are kept by the prison system because it's their workers are there. I guess that made sense. There are efforts by activists today to sort of make the search easier and infiltrate the system to help help people who are looking for for bodies there. Now, the disturbing thing about this, in case nothing nothing else has been disturbing, is the fact that this island is within sight of a very thriving and very lovely neighborhood on the island of City Island. In fact, when I saw Heart Island, when I was doing research for this, I was actually over at City Island, standing in their cemetery, because it's actually kind of a lovely little, like, small townish sort of uh, arrangement, and it goes right down to the water. With tombstones. With some regular tombstones, yes. More picturesque. But you can stand there, and you look across the water, and there is Heart Island, and no one lives there. It's an island that's completely uninhabited, and all it has is ruins and these graves on there. And the remarkable thing to me is City Island has all these lovely homes with backyards and families. So many of them at night could just get up out of bed and hold open their curtains, and they'll just look out into this dark, eerie stillness that's basically their neighbor. And there's no lights. I like to even think from my imagination that there might be like one or two outdoor floodlights. But essentially, there's no movement right out there just to the east of City Island. Now, I've read, but I don't have any specific ghost stories because there's no one there to experience I, and, them. And really, there's just no need at this point. <laughs> but I did read a, a quote that, that uh, Heart Island is, quote, haunted beyond a reasonable doubt. And that's all I need to know. Yeah, we don't need Madame Chenoweth to tell us that. To divine that. No, we don't. Now, the legend of Heart Island goes through TVs and films, comic books, novels. You can probably turn on CSI or those types of shows, Heart Island. The idea has been used, but of course, the city does not allow people to go on the island. There is an interesting website called Heart Island Project, started by a woman named Melinda Hunt, who's trying to actually bring recognition to this place. She's been petitioning for tours, believe it or not. It's not just for history buffs, but also for these families who have had hard times locating deceased relatives and who would like to have information. So she's really been doing that for over 10 years, and that website is called heartisland.net. On our blog, BoweryBoysPodcast.com, I will attempt to find pictures of some of the historical figures that we've mentioned and photographs of some of the buildings that we've talked about. Good luck with that, Greg. (laughs) I would also like to mention that I got information on both of my stories from the book Ghosts of New York by Therese Lanigan-Schmidt. I think Greg and I own just about every book on ghost stories in New York at this point. What are we going to do next year? Um, Maybe we'll do stories about circus clowns in New York. <laughs> That's scary. There's always a good ghost story. I don't think, I think we could, you know, just devote a weekly show on that. But thankfully we're not. We're going to go to more bright and rosier subjects uh, next week or in two weeks. I recommend everyone to check out our Facebook page because it has really turned up the heat in recent months. I'd like to thank everyone who has sent us comments on Facebook and, of course, through regular emails. 
We read them all. We greatly appreciate them. It's very humbling, and it's super fun to see the community that's developing around the love for New York history and the stuff that we post on the blog and the stuff that we talk about on the podcast. So I recommend joining that community. And I should mention that this is our fall season, so we'll have... A lot of juicy shows from here on into the end of December. But thank you for joining us this evening for an extra special and extra spooky night of New York tales. I think I hope that we've given you some entertaining ghost tales, a little history, and of course some things to think about, especially with that last story that, you know, this is our city. So thank you very much for listening. Have a great New York week, whether you live here or not. See you real soon. Across America, BP supports more than 275,000 jobs to keep energy flowing. Jobs like updating turbines at one of our Indiana wind farms and producing more oil and gas with fewer operational emissions in the Gulf of Mexico. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America.